Thank you, Ted, for shepherding our hearts with the word of the Lord in prayer. Well, I had spent the better part of this week preparing a sermon from the remainder of Psalm 23, but in light of conversations with a number of our members, a number of you, and the ongoing social media debates about racial reconciliation and social justice, especially those that have been happening in in lighthouse circles, I was really convicted this week of our need and my need for more shepherding from Christ and his word over these very issues that seem to dominate the hearts and minds and protests of the world, especially as believers are asking, where do we fit in in all of this? And is there more that we as a church and as believers should be doing? And as professing Christians, the place that we must begin to rightly understand and respond to this very real darkness and depravity in the world that we are facing and experiencing. We know that before we can respond, we really have to understand rightly. But before we can rightly understand and respond we have to consider where we stand. Because the place to begin for believers to rightly understand and respond to the very deep, real darkness of this world, it's clearly not with the wisdom and the ways of this fallen world. Brothers and sisters, as we've watched believers interact from the highest level to the lowest level and on social media, It's been brought to my attention by pastors and members alike that many times we do not seem remarkably different from the world we are witnessing in the news. In the words that we say, in the statements we make, in the positions and the remedies that are being offered. The wisdom and the ways of this fallen world seem to be the paths in which we walk to address these issues, whether we're in the church or whether we're outside of the church. And yet, brothers and sisters, we must say, it's the wisdom and ways of the world that's brought us here in the first place. We are here in a nation that is divided and going up in flames, from the White House to our house, not because as a nation as a church and as a people, we were so enamored with Jesus and the gospel and his word, and we shunned the ways and the wisdom of the world. It's technology, it's tools, it's money, it's sports, it's narratives. We're not here because we are so enamored with the narrative that God has given us on the cross. We're at this place with repeated protests and repeated incidents of African-American men being killed or murdered by members of law enforcement. We're here with a nation that has been unable to reconcile its problems with people of different skin colors.
we're here because of the ways and the wisdom of the world which we celebrate on the streets and many times in our hearts and in our churches. And the proof of that is many times in our social media exchanges. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And as we consider that, and we see the words that come out of our mouths and the exchanges, which many times can be divisive and demeaning, and attempts to dominate with our words, we have to stop and ask. And I, I don't even think we need to stop and ask. You know, are these the words of Christ? And are these the words that we find in God's word? And I know this is a little bit heavy. I know I'm raising this, but it was brought to my attention during the webinar um, that the Alliance pastors did. One person spoke to me after and observed, they, they, they said, it seemed like all the pastors were stressed. And someone else said, oh, it seems like they were really thrown down and that there was a lot of messages meant to convict. And I was able to share with some of those people the context behind the scenes. The context behind the scenes was a grieving and a sorrow by the pastors of the Alliance as they witnessed that much of what they were seeing in COVID-19 and also with what has broken out after the George Floyd murder, within lighthouse circles, has demonstrated that we are responding much more like the world than like Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, was the source of great sorrow and discouragement and burden, not just to one individual pastor, but all the pastors. Brothers and sisters, the place we must begin to rightly understand and rightly respond to the injustice, the oppression, and the sin of this world is nothing less than the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His Word. I'm going to say that a second time, because I know I've said it many times, but we seem to forget this, especially as we embrace the ways and the thinking and the wisdom of the world. The, the place we must begin to rightly understand and rightly respond to the injustice, the oppression, the sin of this world is the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His Word. Why? Because God's Word tells us that Jesus Christ alone is the Good Shepherd who alone is able to save us from our sinfulness. And he saves us from our sinfulness in one way and one way alone. And it's not through protests on the street and it's not through debates on social media. Jesus Christ alone is able to save us through repentance from sin and through faith in him. Brothers and sisters, I know you're able to rhyme that off blindfolded. Juggle balls and do somersaults and be able to say that. But we have to ask ourselves as a church, as we look at how we are responding to what is happening in our world, in word, but especially in deed, do we communicate to the world that we are different and we believe 
that Jesus Christ is the only remedy for what we are witnessing, the depravity and the divisiveness and the darkness of the human heart. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 3, that Scripture alone is able to make a person wise for salvation and make the man of God complete, equipped for every good work. And this means, brothers and sisters, that according to God's Word, there is no good work, there is no remedy for this mess in our churches and on our streets without the Lordship of Christ and His Word living in and through us. As we come to Jesus and we come to His Word this morning in Matthew 26, we see that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was no stranger to injustice or oppression or suffering. I think this is something that startles me, and it shouldn't. Why all of a sudden are we all up in arms about injustice, oppression, and suffering. Brothers and sisters, this has been going on for a long time. African-American men getting shot in neighborhoods because they're on a jog, that's not something new. Lynching, that's not something new, whether it's an African-American person or whether it was the Chinese in San Francisco. Legislation from the government prohibiting Asians from immigrating and portraying Asians as a second-class citizens, placing Japanese-Americans in internment camps, hate crimes against anybody and everybody, including Asians. Brothers and sisters, this isn't new. But maybe when we were making money and watching NBA championships, we were too busy to jump into the streets and make protests and make a stir about it. But now we're here. But as we come to our Bibles and we listen to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you see very clearly He was no stranger to injustice, oppression, or suffering. And He was no stranger to protest. Protest. It's the public expression of objection, disapproval, or dissent towards an idea or a course of action. Jesus was no stranger to protesting evil and all the root causes for what we are seeing on our streets. But his protests, like his prayer, were and are markedly different from what we are witnessing today on our streets on our social media, and in our churches. You have your Bibles, turn back with me to Matthew 26. We'll pick up a little bit after where Ted left off. We'll go back to Matthew 26, verse 36, and we'll read to verse 56. This is Matthew's inspired account of the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And it's a passage that is filled with the prayer and the protest Jesus uses to shepherd his sheep And to prepare them for his salvation. The salvation of the cross. Matthew 26, verse 36. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. 
And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing But the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and they fled. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the clear testimony of what we've just heard, these God-breathed words is that much of the time leading up to Jesus' trial is filled with Jesus' prayer and his protest. And unlike what we are seeing and unlike us, Jesus' prayer and protest are never very far apart. They're really never separate. His prayer and his protest go hand in hand. And what's worth noting about Jesus' prayer and protest is that throughout his gospel ministry, the majority of his prayer and protest is not directed at the world. 
to the world he calls to repent. The majority of Jesus' prayer and protest is aimed at those who profess to know and follow God. Brothers and sisters, how much of our protest is the fruit of our prayer? Well, Jesus prays and protests, but his prayer and protest is aimed first, very frequently, at his disciples. Let's have a look at our first point this morning. Jesus protests in prayer. His disciples' failure to believe his word and repent. Jesus protests in prayer. His disciples' failure to believe his word and repent. As we noted last week in Matthew 26, verses 30 through 35, what Ted read for us this morning. Jesus explains to his disciples from the scripture, the written word of God. He explains to them that they are going to be scattered. That the shepherd is going to, God is going to strike the shepherd and his sheep are going to be scattered. And he points out to them from scripture that without him, the good shepherd, taking care of them, they will all fall away. They will all abandon Jesus. They will all deny him as Lord. They will all stand silently and complicitly as Jesus is falsely accused. And they will all stand silently and complicitly as Jesus is crucified by both Romans and Jews. The implication from Scripture and from Jesus from the book of Zechariah, is that Jesus alone can save them from their sin. They cannot stand on their own without Jesus. They need Jesus. They need to cling to Jesus. Not some of the time. Not on Saturdays when they go to the synagogues. Not on the days that they're at Bible study. Not at the times when they're gathered together. They need Jesus, and they need to cling to Jesus in everything, every minute, every moment, every second of their lives. Brothers and sisters, this is what biblical repentance is. Biblical repentance is not, yeah, I made a few mistakes. I'm sorry, I could have done a better job. I will just have to try and do better. Yeah, it wasn't so great. Biblical repentance, brothers and sisters, as Jesus shows here, is abandoning ourselves completely. We have no righteousness. There is nothing good in us at all. We are totally depraved sinners. Abandoning ourselves completely and clinging to Jesus for everything. That's biblical repentance. Unless you become as a little child, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are born again, Nicodemus, in spite of all your Bible learning, in spite of you meeting with me here at night, unless you are born again, you will never see or enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's a completely new start. It's a complete discard of the entirety of our life in this world. Not out of this world, in this world. And it's a complete embrace of Christ as our only hope.
But brothers and sisters, we will never abandon ourselves and we will never cling to Jesus for a minute or a moment if we do not believe his word. When the disciples insist in verse 33 and verse 35 that they will not deny Jesus as he has told them they will. Essentially, they are telling Jesus his word and his scripture do not apply to them. At least not these words in this time and at this case. Applies to everybody else, but not us. And brothers and sisters, when we do the same, when we pick and choose what portions of scripture apply to us and do not apply to us, like the disciples, we are essentially calling Jesus a liar. And we are saying his word is untrue. And we do not believe his word. We are becoming God. Where we pick and choose where and how his word will be fulfilled. And how it will be applied and to whom. That's the path of the Pharisees, brothers and sisters. The people whom Jesus protested and condemned the most. And sadly, it's the same trend very often in the church in America, where we pick and choose the portions that we do well, and we point our fingers at everyone else. Not by accident in the following verses, verses 36, excuse me, 36 to 46, as Jesus takes his disciples with them to a place called Gethsemane to watch and pray with him right after they have just rejected Jesus' words and the words of Scripture, the words of Zechariah. None of the disciples, including Peter, James, and John, are willing or able to stay awake with Jesus, to watch and pray with Jesus, to be with Jesus, to cling to Jesus in prayer. Instead, they fall asleep. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you this. How often do we fall asleep when our life is under threat or attack? How often do we fall asleep and have a great night's sleep when we are, as verse 37 and 38 says, sorrowful and troubled? And that word troubled means burden, distress, getting squeezed really tightly, getting pounded. When something's not going well at work, when an employer is not treating you well, when there's conflict with a brother and sister, when you're sick, when you're not sure whether the next paycheck is going to come in, how often do you sleep well? No problem. Brothers and sisters, if the disciples really believed Jesus' warning and his words of Zechariah 13.7, that they were about to undergo the greatest satanic attack in their lives, that they were about to be pressed and squeezed and shaken by Satan himself, that they would fail and that they would fall, do you really think they would have fallen asleep? And this moment recalls that storm on the Sea of Galilee where fishermen in a boat that is being tossed by wind and waves and water's coming into the boat where they are not sleeping, they're jumping up and down and they're upset with Jesus that he's asleep. And they 
wake and rouse Jesus and let him know. Do you not know that, that we're about to drown here? They weren't falling asleep then. All too familiar as fishermen of the treacheries of the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a storm. But at that time, it was Jesus who was asleep. Do you really think they would have fallen asleep? We're at a time and a place where the church is eager to protest. Brothers and sisters, are we eager to pray? In verse 36 through 46, Jesus protests his disciples' prayerless unbelief with his own confession and prayer. And his own confession and prayer serves as a protest that exposes the hearts of the disciples. His confession and prayer reveals a heart that, unlike his disciples, truly loves and believes not some of God's word, but all of God's word, including the hardest parts, including God's holy hatred and necessary judgment against not some of our sin, but all of our sin. Black people's sin, white people's sin, red people's sin, yellow people's sin. Jesus is troubled about all of it. And so in verse 38, Jesus confesses to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And then in verse 39, Jesus falls on his face in prayer, praying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Brothers and sisters, we're jumping up and down right now, and we should, we should not approve what's been happening. But let me just ask you over the last 20 years, how much sleep have you lost over the sin of this world? How much sleep have you lost and how sad and sorrowful have you been over the sin of this nation? Well, now it's very politically correct to come out and say, we need to listen. We need to hear people's hurts. And I don't want to diminish that. But where was everybody when this has been going on? For not decades, but centuries in America. Jesus was always sorrowful and burdened and saddened and heartbroken over the sins of this world. That's why, brothers and sisters, he came and gave up his crown and glory and his comfort to come and live a harsh and difficult life that culminated in rejection, humiliation, and the cross. Why did he do that? Because he was burdened and sorrowful over the sin of this world and over the consequences of that sin and over the wrath of God that is sure to come to that sin. So in verse 39, Jesus falls on his face in prayer, praying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup Pass from me. And the cup, as you know, is a reference to God's just wrath and righteous judgment against the sin, not just of some people, but of the world. And as we point our fingers on social media, highlighting some of the sins of this world and conveniently ignoring other sins in this world, That is not the prayer and pattern of Jesus. 
My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then in verse 42, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And with this prayer, Jesus shows us the heart that truly loves and believes God's word. It is a heart that is truly sorrowful and troubled over the sin of this world. It is a heart that looks in prayer to God as the only hope of salvation. It is a heart that is convinced that God is listening as a father but knows best what needs to happen. It is a heart that humbly allows God's word to shepherd the thoughts and feelings of this heart. And it is a heart that humbly submits, not to some of God's word, but to the entire will and word of God. Brothers and sisters, what a contrast to the protest that is demonstrated by the disciples. What a contrast from the prayer of the disciples, the prayer of snoring, What a contrast to the unbelieving heart of the disciples, to whom Jesus says in verse 40 and 41, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Brothers and sisters, if we don't believe what God's word says, all of it, about all our sin, We will never give our lives to Him in prayer. Who needs it? Why do I need to pray? I'm pretty good. I'm better than those other guys. Brothers and sisters, if we do not believe what God's Word says about our sin, not other people's, our sin, we will never give our lives to Him in prayer. And if we never give our lives to Him in prayer, will we ever give our lives to Him on the cross and when it matters most? Will we ever be different from this world that is burning in its own darkness and depravity? This brings us to our second point for this morning. Jesus protests disciples who think and act like this fallen world. Jesus protests disciples who think and act like this fallen world. In verse 47 through 49, the world comes to seize Jesus. Take him forcibly. And they're led by Judas, whom Matthew identifies as one of the twelve disciples, as the betrayer. And Judas appears with a great crowd with swords and clubs that have been sent by the chief priests and elders. And as you harmonize the gospel accounts and you see the different gospel accounts that also include members of the Roman cohort who have also been sent alongside. Dr. MacArthur makes the point that there could have been up to a thousand armed men showing up at the Garden of Gethsemane. And as we read the details, we see that they are playing by the same playbook as our president. They have come armed. They have come in large numbers. They have come with force. They have come ready to dominate their opposition. They have come ready to dominate with physical force and violence. They 
like the president, do not want to look like jerks. And this, brothers and sisters, has always been the way of the world. Dominate, bully, crush, silence one's opposition with your words or your weapons. Do so under the cover of darkness. Do so without accountability on a computer screen. Do so with physical force and violence and deceit. Brothers and sisters, we can do just as much as this with our words on social media according to Jesus. Where our hearts and thoughts are angry and we are guilty of murder as much as soldiers or policemen on the streets. If we believe what Jesus says, he will hold us accountable for our ugly words that are used to bully and silence and crush and oppress. Even as he will hold accountable those who lean on someone's neck for nine minutes to murder and to kill. Leading this charge is Judas, one of the twelve disciples who betrays Jesus. And he does so with a pretense of love and respect for Jesus. He comes kissing Jesus and greeting Jesus as rabbi. A physical display of affection, a term of respect. But speaking the truth in love in verse 50, Jesus cuts through Judas' pretense and lies. He calls Judas, in our English translation, friend. In Greek, the word is hetairos. It means associate. It does not mean philostros, friend, one who I love, associate. And in Matthew's gospel, as you look at how Matthew uses this Greek word, hetairos, he typically uses it of people who are in association, but who are hangers-on, users, people who are trying to get some sort of personal gain or leg up by associating with someone. This is the term that Jesus calls Judas. And then he says to Judas, do what you came to do. And with these words, Jesus protests Judas' pretense of loving Jesus, when in fact what Judas is doing is he's really loving the world. And we are reminded of Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, where he says, By their fruits you will know them. There will be many false prophets. And there will be many who will come at the judgment and say, Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons in your name and do miracles in your name? And I'm going to cast you aside... And say, I never knew you, you who were workers of lawlessness, and you never did the will of my Father. Who's Jesus speaking to in Matthew 7? He's speaking to the disciples. Not speaking to all those people running the streets out there. Brothers and sisters, how many churches are filled with people who come and show visible displays of affection and refer to Jesus as teacher, when in their hearts they are really loving the world. By your fruits, you will know them. However, Jesus saves his greatest rebuke and protest, not for Judas, but for someone else. And in verse 50, as the world attempts to seize and silence Jesus with the sword, Matthew tells us in verse 51, one of those who was with Jesus now thinks and acts like the world by lashing out with his own sword and cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant. And in John 18, John explains to us, this is his buddy, 
one of the inner three. This is none other than Peter, with whom, whom Jesus has just specifically warned not long before, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And in verse 41, Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Brothers and sisters, when do we enter into temptation? When do disciples enter into temptation? Well, here in this passage for Peter, it's when he abandons Christ and he chooses to think and act like the world, using the world's show of strength, using the world's tools and the world's ways. Brothers and sisters, how often do we think and act like the world in our protests, in our social media, And brothers and sisters, I say this because this has come through a number of believers who have expressed their grief over how similar we look to the world and the words that are coming out of our mouths, especially on our social media. One brother shared with me, it doesn't look that different from everything else that the world seems to be putting on social media. Our words, brothers and sisters, do they edify and give grace? Do they build up? Do they point someone to Christ and our need for Him and the good news of the gospel? Or do they tear down and divide those who we allegedly are on the same team? And brothers and sisters, the sort of things that we talk about on social media, even from a world's perspective, as people are dying in the streets and we're talking about some of these things and we're, you know, throwing down and got our little verbal mixed martial arts going on. I also want to address our enamorment in conservative evangelicalism with guns. Somehow in the conservative evangelical world, sex and sensuality and all of that is off limits. But violence is okay. And it's okay for us to participate or view in violent sports. And it's okay for us to celebrate, well, we need to be real men. And this celebration and enamorment with the right to bear arms and the use of firearms. I'm not denying our Constitution. I'm not here trying to attack the NRA. I'm not here trying to make a political statement, brothers and sisters. Do we spend as much time on our knees in prayer as we do going out with our buddies and shooting firearms that make us feel empowered and big and machismo like we're men who can lead? Well, Jesus led on his knees in prayer and on the cross, brothers and sisters. So if you're doing that, then shoot all you want. But if you're not, you need to question whether your manhood is based in Christ or in the ways of this world. How often, brothers and sisters, do we watch and pray like Jesus? Or do we behave like fools who believe and have said in their hearts, there is no God watching or holding us accountable? Let's not call ourselves Christians and let's not exchange those truths if we are not indeed following Jesus as Lord. What is Jesus' response to Peter's protest? Does he applaud Peter's swordplay and his use of a big weapon just like the Romans. Oh, Peter, good job, brother. You got his ear. A few inches over, you would have really done the job. 
Good job on practicing with the brothers and using that sword with the disciples in your spare time. No, in verse 51, he commands Peter, commands Peter, put your sword back into its place. And then he says the now familiar words, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Brothers and sisters, in Scripture, the sword, from its earliest use in the Torah, five books of Moses, foundational, the sword is a symbol of the Lord's justice and His judgment, holy and righteous against sin. Very beginning. So Adam and Eve get tossed out of the Garden of Eden. What does the Lord do? He puts angels at the entrance with a flaming sword. You're not allowed back in. The sword, it's the device of the Lord's justice, symbol of His justice and judgment. Brothers and sisters, if you take up the sword, you're standing in God's place. You better be sure you stand for the Lord. And throughout the Torah, the Lord makes clear that when Israel disobeys God and they break the covenant, He's going to bring judgment into their lives by famine, pestilence, the sword, and wild beasts. Right now we've got two, pestilence and the sword. It's his judgment. As we come to the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, the Lamb of God returns as a judge. He returns on a white horse and out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. It's the word of God. And he comes with that two-edged sword to strike down the nations. But before he does, in Revelation 6, God removes peace from the earth. And he sends the red horse to remove peace from the earth. Revelation 6, so that people should slay one another. Brothers and sisters, does that sound remotely familiar to what we're witnessing The removal of peace so that the world should slay one another. Now, I'm not coming and saying that what we witnessed is a direct fulfillment of Revelation 6 and that the red horseman is here. What you do see throughout Scripture is that God will frequently give foretastes of the judgment to come. And those foretastes of the judgment to come are warnings for his church to get their act together and repent because the real day of the Lord is coming in fullness and it will be far greater and far more severe but in same nature and same way. In verse 51, where Jesus says, For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. I believe Jesus is uttering a warning of judgment to his disciples. If you think and act like the world, you are going to be judged and you are going to perish like this world is going to be judged and perish when I show up again, not as the Savior, but as the judge. And the sword from my mouth, the two-edged sword of the Word of God, which cuts marrow and bone and is living and is going to cut people down. You're going to be on either one side or the other. Those who think and act like the world or those who think and act like their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And brothers and sisters, that's why Paul in Romans 12, 2 says to the believers, after he says, offer your lives as a living sacrifice to the Lord, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's why in Ephesians, he tells us not to act like the Gentiles and not to think like the Gentiles and not to walk like the Gentiles. That's the way we used to. But we must go as we have learned Christ. That in our minds and our way of thinking, we need to put off the ways of the world and we need to put on Jesus and think as he does. Because he's given us the gospel and he's given us his word. The world doesn't have that, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, the world and its ways only bring judgment and the sword. And we're seeing that. It is only Jesus and the cross. The cross of his word that saves sinners like you and I. That brings us to our final point for this morning. Jesus protests the denial of who he truly is. According to God's word. Jesus protests the denial of who he truly is according to God's word. Brothers and sisters, every time we think and act like the world, we are denying what Scripture says. We are denying what Scripture says about who Jesus is. And we are denying the authority and power of the good news of Jesus Christ. What we're coming out and saying is, the world has a better way. When we come and say, is there more that we should do We're saying the gospel and Jesus and his death on the cross, that's not enough to fix the problem. What we're saying is that what scripture says, that Jesus is the eternal son of God, the Christ, the king of heaven who came in the flesh to do what no man could ever do, to save us from our sin by dying on the cross. What we're coming out and saying when we act and think like the world is, yeah, maybe. And this is the point, brothers and sisters, that Jesus makes right after he rebukes Peter for swinging his sword. In verse 53, he says to Peter, do you think that I cannot, and clearly Peter's not thinking, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And this, what Jesus is saying, is a direct reference to scripture, to the written word of God, authoritative and inerrant. That Jesus is the eternal son of God, that God is his father. That Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the king of heaven who in love has surrendered his divine privileges and his rights in order to obey his Father's written and inerrant word out of love for you and I. I could have 12 legions of angels, but I'm not going to do that. Don't you know? I'm doing this, Peter, for you. Because unless I die on the cross, as is written in the scriptures, and unless I rise on the third day, you will never be saved. 
Peter, I love you. I'm doing this for you as our only hope of salvation from your sin and sinfulness, as has been written in the Word of God. There is no other way to save you, Peter. And sadly, the disciples cannot see or understand who Jesus is or what is happening. He's pointing out to Peter, you don't really see what's going on. You don't understand who I truly am because you don't believe the word of the Lord. And this is in no small part, Peter, because you are thinking and acting like the world. And Jesus makes this connection even as he gives a very similar rebuke to the crowd with swords and clubs in verses 55 and 56. Verse 55, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. What's Jesus saying here? Saying the crowds with their swords and clubs are a testimony that they do not have a clue who Jesus is. And they do not have a clue what's written in God's word. And they do not have a clue who they are messing with or what is happening. That God's sovereign plan of salvation is being fulfilled right before their very eyes. And that Jesus gives his disciples a rebuke that is similar to the one he gives the crowd that neither of them understand who he truly is, and neither of them understand that God's word is being fulfilled right before their very eyes. That similar rebuke of both of them, brothers and sisters, is damning. Because neither the disciples nor the crowd understand the scriptures or who Jesus is. And Matthew closes this portion of the narrative in verse 56, saying, Then all the disciples left him, And they fled. Brothers and sisters, that's where we will all be, myself included, when we think and we act like the world. When we refuse to believe that all of Scripture applies to us, including the indictment of sin. When our remedy is we'll just try harder, things will be a little bit better, We've just made a few mistakes. It's just a few bad apples. We will all leave him and flee. Brothers and sisters, I am neither a prophet nor a son of a prophet. But this I know is true from God's word. What we are witnessing in our world from COVID-19 to George Floyd is not an accident. This is the fulfillment of the authoritative and inerrant word of God. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.1, maybe his last epistle before he gets his head cut off. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. If you have your Bibles, look up 2 Timothy 3. Read through this. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, get this, abusive, 
Are we seeing abuse? Abusive. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. Heartless. Are we seeing heartless? Unappeasable. Slanderous. Without self-control. Brutal. Not loving good. Treacherous. Reckless. Swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Brothers and sisters, we're shocked and we're horrified. We should be offended by what we've seen on the TV screen. We should be offended at men being murdered. But brothers and sisters, it's all over the pages of Scripture in 3D. Even as the Lord has written. This is what we have witnessed in our police departments, in our streets, in our protests, and in our churches. Brothers and sisters, I also know this. This I know because the Bible tells me so. Jesus is coming. And He's coming again. And when He comes, He's coming this time, not with the cross, but with the sword. And He's coming as the judge. And the only thing that is going to save anyone from the burning fires of hell and from his divine justice and wrath is the gospel, which is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. And the only reason he has not come already is to give his lost sheep in the church and in the world an opportunity to repent of thinking and acting like the world and instead to place their faith in Him before He comes. Not in some things, brothers and sisters, not one day of the week, 24-7. Brothers and sisters, if we think and act like the world, we will be judged like the world. But Christ has come, And he comes back for his sheep, and he comes back for Peter. Comes for a man like Paul. And he saves us because we cannot save ourselves. But make no mistake, he saves us with the cross and the resurrection, and he saves us with the gospel and not the things of this world. Do we recognize Jesus for who he truly is? As Lord of all. Do we believe in his word? And do we believe, brothers and sisters, that the gospel truly can save us? Well, if we do, then, brothers and sisters, that is good news. And God has given it to us. And we need to stop and be grateful to the Lord and get down on our knees and say, Jesus, thank you for having mercy and grace on sinners like us and giving us your good news and opening our eyes. It's not because we're righteous. It's not because we're good. It's not because we're better than the people on the streets. It's because you in mercy and grace gave up everything to die on the cross for us. Brothers and sisters, we cannot save the world. Only Christ can. And we certainly can't point them to the remedy, the gospel, if we don't believe it. Brothers and sisters, this is why the Apostle Paul, in Galatians 6.14, says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Well, what do we need to do? What more should we do? We need to spend time with Jesus, brothers and sisters. We need to cling to him. Before we point our fingers at the world and social media, and before we debate and put people in their place, we need to consider and get the log out of our own eye. And we need to come to him and repent. The grievance that the pastors of the Lighthouse Churches have brought up is this grievance and this realization that Lighthouse Bible Church is a very worldly place. There, I said it. You may be less worldly than many other churches out there. Yes. But Jesus isn't going to come and he's not going to measure us by all those other churches, brothers and sisters. He's going to measure us by the good news of the gospel, which he's given us. And he's going to measure us by the word which he's left with us. And he continues to give us time to learn and to know before he comes back out of mercy and grace and love. And the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is when by faith we abandon ourselves. When we admit and confess that we are not as good as we like to think we are. And when we place our faith in Jesus and we come to him. He not only saves us, he sanctifies us. And he changes us and he makes us different. And he gives us a new heart and a new mind. Brothers and sisters, that is what he uses. To bring light into a dark place. To bring peace where there is division. To bring reconciliation where there is enmity. To a place where we boast and celebrate the beauty and the greatness of a cross that saves sinners like you and I. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a Savior, what a cross, and what a gospel. Lord Jesus, would we come to you and cling to you as our rock and our shield and our salvation. May we place our hope in nothing else. May we see that your word shows us the truth of what is happening. May we find all our rest and hope in you. Would you forgive us for acting and thinking like the world? Instead, Lord Jesus, would you be our Lord and Savior of the entirety of our lives. In your name we pray, amen.